I have been thinking about sermons that I preach and sermons that I listen to. I was thinking about that last week, asking this question. How much of my life in the ensuing week is impacted by what I either preached or what I listened to? I think that's a good question for all of us to ask, perhaps, hey? How much of how I think about God this week will be impacted by by what I preached this morning? How I think about myself, how I filter through issues, cultural and otherwise, how I forgive, how I repent, how I lead, how I submit, how I serve, how I walk, how I work, how I play, how I worship. How much of my life, how much of your life this week will be impacted by the truth that Joe just read and I will speak? If we tried to quantify it percentage-wise, what would I say about myself? 30%? Uh, 3%? 0.3%? 0.003%? You know, it's, it's hard to answer that question, but you get the gist of it. How much of what I'm hearing is actually impacting me? Because James talks about not just being a hearer of God's word, but a doer of the word. Heard a story this last week about a preacher that went on a 12-week sabbatical. He decided for each of those 12 Sundays, Lord's Days, that he was going to attend a different church just to hear different preaching. At the end of those 12 weeks, a good friend of him, of his asked him, so what did you learn from listening to all these 12 different sermons? And he said, and I quote, I learned that if anyone gets anything, it's a miracle. If anyone gets anything, it's a miracle. Now, on one hand, he might have just been providing commentary on perhaps the poor quality of preaching he was exposed to. But on the other hand, Maybe he was making a commentary on the poor state of listening. You know, even Jesus' disciples, those who heard the best preaching ever, right? Those who heard the best sermon ever, missed some of the plainest things he ever spoke. We've seen that in the Gospel of Matthew, haven't we? So if that's you, you're in good company. Well, how about this. How would I position myself? I'm not really talking about this text yet, though I kind of am. You'll see. How, How do I position myself then to really hear the voice of God in a message? And how to 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 really be changed in the coming week by the voice of God I heard through that message. How would I position myself? And when I was thinking about that, two things came to mind: prayer and patience, prayer. What if before you ever got here, you sought to connect with God in prayer before you ever connected with the preacher before you, whoever it is that week, wherever you're at? Your prayer would be something like this. Lord, will you speak to me through that guy? And if you want to call that guy a donkey or something else, Old Testament illusion, that's fine. You can say worse about me. 
But what would it look like to say, God, I really want to hear your voice. I want you to speak to my heart through the word of God today. Think about how that might change us a little bit. Maybe it would steer us away from being sermon evaluators. And by the way, it's, it's a good thing to actually have a biblical filter when you listen to preaching, for sure, Acts 17, 11. But, but you know what I'm talking about there. And I, I'll be honest with you, as someone who has preached nearly half of my life now, who did extensive training on homiletics and preaching, it is hard for me not to listen to a sermon being a sermon evaluator. Like, oh, brother, oh, why'd you say it that way? That doesn't mean that, all that. And that's not good. What have we said, Lord, I wanna hear from you. I think that would change us into a worshiper of God who is wanting to hear from the living God and be changed by the living God. If you're a believer, you know something of this, even if only momentary reality, when you're in a sermon somewhere, you're in a service somewhere, and it's like, even just momentarily, the veil is pulled back. And I tell you, brother, I tell you, sister, the living God is talking to me right now. Have you ever had that happen to you? Because this ain't no lecture. When anybody delivers the word of God, it is not a lecture. It is, it is God speaking to his people. It's doxological. And do you know what it is for the Holy Spirit to commandeer this guy's words to speak his word deep into the recess of your soul? Do you know what that's like? We should pray to that end. So prayer to position our hearts for that. The other thing is patience. Not our patience, because we're pretty doggone impatient, right? But the patience of God. We should be encouraged by the relentless patience of God to tell us the same thing over and over and over because we need to hear it over and over and over and over. Have you noticed how patient Jesus is with his disciples through the Gospel of Matthew so far? Have you noticed that? I mean, he has been relentlessly and patiently telling them about who he is and what he's going to do and, 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 and what life in the kingdom is like and what, how they're to respond, and more and more and more, right? How are they getting it? Sometimes they're getting it real good. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Bam, base hit. Next at bat, strikeout. You will never go to the cross. No way, Lord. Isn't that just like us? Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Making this old man, oh, my back. Doc Haber, can you help me out now? But what does Jesus do? People, they're so up and down, right? Yet Jesus is so relentlessly faithful. And what we're going to see, this is where we come to the text. Jesus, out of his relentless patience of trying to get truth across to his disciples, is going to take three of them up on a mountaintop for a kind of a retreat. Never had a mountaintop experience before? I literally had one. It was probably 2006, 2007, maybe eight, when the Hanafis and the Bontragers Went for a family vacation. We were, that's when we lived in uh, Oregon. We went to the Canadian Rockies. 
rented this big, beautiful house together as families and did a lot of hiking. But one day, one morning, Cleet, myself, and my oldest son, Kevin, had the great idea of climbing the mountain right behind the house. Now, it wasn't one of the major Canadian Rockies, but baby, it was a mountain. And it seemed like a good idea. I mean, all we could see is trees and, yeah, a gentle slope up, but it wasn't a massive mountain. Well, we set off on that trek, and several hours later, it almost got vertical. And uh, Cleet's running point, almost climbing up a wall. Kevin is in the middle. I'm behind. I guess I'm going to be like the road bump. What, what good am I going to do? It's going to be domino if Kevin falls. And it, it got so steep. If you've ever done that, it, it's harder to actually go back down because you can't see down there than it is to go up. And maybe this is false bravado. Maybe it is. I, I don't think I scared too easily, but I was scared. And I remember punctuating uh, the tension in any way that I felt in the air by jokingly saying as we neared the summit, tell Susan I loved her. And, and the kind of the debate was, well, will I say it in past tense because you're gone? Is it I love her or I loved her? And we kind of joked around that. I think there's a video of that. But that was a mountaintop experience I will never forget all the days of my life. Do you know the Bible majors on mountaintop experiences? Some of the biggest things, some of the most epic things happen on a mountain in Scripture. You remember Moses? There's this burning bush, some super, super burning bush, supernatural pyrotechnics, pyrotechnics. And who is in the midst of that supernatural pyrotechnics? God, God, the living God appears to him up on Mount Sinai in a burning bush. Later, Moses will receive the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments up on a mountain, and it will be uh, a massive storm up there, peals of thunder, bolts of lightning, and all the rest. Elijah, showdown with the frenzy, demon-possessed prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 18, Mount Carmel. And Jesus, we saw this last year in Matthew chapter 4, is going to be taken by Satan as it were up onto a high mountain where he will be tempted. Well, today, Jesus is taking Peter and James and John up on a mountaintop so that he can reinforce some truths they are slow to get. And in fact, they're not even going to get it right here. They're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. Yet, Later, Peter is going to write, you go down to 2 Peter chapter 1, it goes something like this, that, um, oh, how does it go? 2 Peter chapter 1, for we, he says, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. He, Jesus, received Honor and glory from God the Father above. And a voice was born from above. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We heard a voice from the AV booth. Kids, be quiet. It was like a Mount Transfiguration experience, right? There was that voice. And then Peter goes on to say, we heard that voice from heaven ourselves because we were with him on the high mountain. What does that say? Peter ultimately got it. 
Or how about John chapter one? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Read down to verse 14. And the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten son. I think that's really encouraging. We are teaching our children, are we not? Do they always get it? Do you always get what you hear? When you open up the Bible, do you always get it? The answer is no, but this is a reminder that they would later write 2 Peter chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 14. This is a reminder that often the impact and the weight and the transformation from a giving teaching doesn't come later. So you just got to keep on eating. All right, let's just kind of walk this text. Let's, let's, let's just all join them on this retreat, okay? I want to talk to you about mountaintop truth for a life down here in the valley. Because we live in a valley, don't we? We live in the valley of the shadow of death, and we need some truth to sustain us. So number one, the way we're gonna walk through the text, marker number one, we're gonna see a manifestation of Christ's glory. A demonstration, if you will, of Christ's glory. A manifestation in which Jesus, in effect, is saying, I am God. We saw already that it's Peter and James and John up on that mountain for that retreat. Verse two, we read that Jesus was transfigured, metamorphosized, only so radically that he goes on to say his face shone like the brightest star in our solar system. That's some high wattage there, isn't it? It's like, it's like, the flap on the tent was opened up. And the blazing effulgence of the glory of God, boom, shines right out. He's radiating, the verse goes on to say, the glory of God so much that it's like it bleached out his clothes. Jesus is providing a preview of himself in his glorified state because you can read in Revelation 1 and 16 that he, his face shone like the sun in its full strength. Now, have we seen anything like this in the story of God so far? Have you seen anything like this in Scripture? Moses, remember that? I already mentioned Moses a couple of times. He's up on the mountain, burning bush, Decalogue. When he comes off the mountain, what do they have to do with him? Put a veil on his face because he is glowing so much. So we've seen something like that, but there is a cardinal difference with this. Moses reflected the glory of God because he was in God's presence. There's God, glory coming to him. He reflects it back so much, he needs a veil. Jesus, however, doesn't reflect the glory of God. He actually radiates the glory of God because he is the very presence of God. Do you see that? He's saying with that manifestation of his glory, I am God. Well, then you get to verse three. Elijah and Moses show up. They're talking with him, our, our text says. Luke actually tells us specifically the content of what they were talking about, namely his coming exodus or his death. Now what's the significance of Moses and Elijah showing up supernaturally at the Mount of Transfiguration, making this three-person retreat into a five-person retreat? It's this, to make it short. 
One of the ways the Old Testament is described by the Bible itself is the law and the prophets, right? You've heard that expression, meaning the entire canon of Old Testament scripture. All how many books? Old Testament, 39. All 39 books, they would just call for shorthand the law and the prophets. Who's Moses? Moses is the great lawgiver, right? Who's Elijah? the first of the great prophets. So when you have Moses and Elijah showing up, it's like the Old Testament showing up. And one of the commentators put it so aptly, so poetically when he said, it's like the law and the gospel shake hands, the law rather and the prophets show up to shake hands with the gospel. So here's Moses, the Old Testament law, nice to finally meet you, Jesus. Then here's Elijah. The Old Testament prophets, nice to finally meet you, Jesus. They're shaking hands. But of course, what makes that so significant is that very Jesus will have his hands spread in order to fulfill the law as foretold by the prophets. That's the significance of the two extra guys being invited to this retreat supernaturally. Well, verse four, you know Peter's gotta have his say. He always have his say, has his say. So enter Peter once again. Let's just walk through what Peter says. Verse four, and Peter said, Jesus, Lord, which I would remind us is a very good way to start the sentence when you're talking to Jesus, Lord. He continues, it is good that we are here. Peter, that would probably be a great place to stop your sentence with Jesus. But not Peter, he's gonna continue on. Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, just stop, Peter. But he barrels through. I will make you three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Stop, Peter. Now, what's wrong with what Peter is saying? Is there anything wrong with what Peter's saying? What's wrong with a little old-fashioned hospitality, just trying to make three little tents for a little camping retreat? What's, What's the problem with that? What do you think the problem is with that is? Is there a problem? There's two problems, probably more, but two that I will call to attention. Number one, it applies that Jesus is gonna be staying up there for a while. When Jesus has been telling him he's got some business to take care of in Jerusalem. And what's that business? The cross. Yet again, Peter is not getting the cross, is he? He is still dominated more by a crown theology than he is a cross theology. The second implication, which is the focus of this first movement, is it implies that Moses and Jesus and Elijah are all peers, you know, all equals. We can put Jesus in the middle, but they all have the same tense. Perhaps they were still wrestling with exactly who Jesus was. Perhaps they were imbibing what the masses were saying. We're going to come back to that. What the majority was saying that Jesus is a great prophet to be sure, but don't get carried away and make him more than that. They were missing the significance of the manifestation of Christ's glory as God. 
And so Jesus is reinforcing what he has been saying in so many ways. Listen, family. In his patient love, he is giving them not just a dose, not just a strong dose, but a visible dose of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which says, long ago and in many ways and in many places, the Father spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made all things. And he goes on to say, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. So number one, what we see is Jesus declaring through this outward effulgence of his glory, I am God. Second movement, we're gonna see the affirmation of the Father in verses five through seven. This affirmation is the Father cutting in and saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, he really is God. You ought to listen to him. He really is God. So Peter is seeing the glory of God, but he clearly is not seeing the glory of God. Would you agree? Peter is off still. He's not getting it. So it's like the father abruptly cuts him off. Look at verse five. He was still speaking, just carrying on, doing Peter. (laughs) When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. What do you think they would have thought of when that bright cloud suddenly overshadowed them? What do you think they would have thought of as followers of God, of Yahweh, as Jewish believers? What do you think they would have thought of? They would have thought of the cloudy pillar by day. You remember that in the Old Testament that they mentioned again and again that led the Israelites by the very presence of God? They would have thought of maybe the fiery pillar at night. Perhaps they would have thought of all the times you read in the Old Testament when the Shekinah, 58 times, the Shekinah glory of God appears and just fills a temple with the manifest presence of God. They they probably would have thought of that. But this, this supernatural visual of God, verse 5a, is followed by a supernatural audible from God, the voice of God, verse 5b. When the father, again, abruptly cuts off Peter and he says, this is my beloved son. A quotation from Psalm 2, verse 7. Followed by, in whom or with whom I am well pleased. That's from Isaiah 42, verse 1. And then he adds words from Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 15, in that verse, Moses said, hey, there's going to be another prophet like me only much more, he's going to be the coming Messiah, the prophet of all prophets. He says, now listen to him when he comes. And now the Father hand selects that divinely inspired verse from so many years ago and pours it in to the very identity of Jesus, saying, listen to him. Who, I started off the service by saying, who's commanded to praise God? Just believers? Everybody. Who is commanded to listen to Jesus? Everybody, because he's creator. He didn't say, listen, if you want to listen to him, it's an option you can explore. It's a command. He says, listen to him. And of course, this is decidedly something that the disciples, with all the light they had, were not doing all so well. Just like us. Hence the introduction. I can't remember who it was, but one of the ladies Wednesday night gave some great insight 
during the Q&A with our Story of God Bible study. And this, this lady said, one of the ways that we listen to Jesus is we listen to his word. You can't divorce the written word from the living word. So if you want to hear from Jesus, and we're commanded to hear from Jesus, we open up the word of God. Jesus actually said that is more essential than, than bread itself. When he was led to a high mountain, he said, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, I'm going to close out this second point by just making a, uh, observing a few more things. The Lord in his grace is doing some corrective heart surgery on, on those early disciples, right? Would you agree? And he is now, in verses 6 and 7, going to put two attributes of, in front of them that we do well as believers in 2024 to never let go of. Attribute number one, the holiness of God. What does the holiness of God mean? Separate, it doesn't mean just without sin. It does mean that, pure. But it also means just other, otherly, like otherworldly or different, distinct, set apart, separate. He's other than us. He is creator, and we are created being, right? And when you start to blur those lines, like saying, I can take life, that's only the prerogative of the creator, right? You have stopped having a holy view of God. And we live in a time, it's always been this case, but now it's, we're just drinking in ugly shot after shot of plastic surgery on the living God. A little airbrushing so that he is tamed and domesticated. And yet the scripture says our God is a consuming fire, right? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that is why they respond the way they do. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, finally something of it fell on them. What do, what do they do? They fall on their faces and they're what? Oh, this is so mundane, humdrum. Can we get on with it? No, they're, they're terrified. Do you see that? They're literally terrified. A little terror in our hearts might be a good thing when it comes to the living God. When you couple it with the other attribute, verse 7, I'm calling incarnational grace. That this God is a, who's a fearful God. This God who is above everything, transcendent, also drew near to us in Christ. Do you not see it in those words? But Jesus came. That's why we're Christians, because Jesus came. He came to us, and he touched us. And he says, don't fear. Well, how can I not fear? Because Jesus took our greatest threat upon himself on the cross. And so now we hold on to the holiness of God and the incarnational grace of God. We're blown away that we could ever be accepted by God and we embrace the reality, yet we have lavishly at the cost of his son. Has Jesus touched you? Has there been a time in your life you're like, whoa, I am not right with the living God. 
I may have done church. I may have gone through outward ritual, but I have never seen myself for who I really am in the sight of a holy God. And then having showed you your true sinful estate as he showed you how much the Savior loved you and agonized for you on that cross. He came and he touched him. The punctuation mark to point to the Father's affirmation, he really is God, appears in verse 8. When they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but who? Jesus only. (laughs) Wow. Poof. Moses gone. Poof. Elijah gone. Last man standing. The God man standing. Now, I do want to wrap up this point with one other thing. These two first scenes, which we took the most time with, the, the demonstration of Christ's glory, I am God, the affirmation of the Father, he really is God, coupled together, give us a glorious truth called the triune nature of God. Again, going back to what we're seeking to teach our children. They're going through the New City Catechism. Catechism. Chism question number three. You guys know that question? One of the kids can speak up right here. How many persons are there in God? Answer, there are three in the one. We are getting the gist of it, and that's beautiful, okay? There are three persons, you can say it with me, there are three persons in the one true and living God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So, so, so apply that to this, this story. The glory of the Son, the glory of the Father, What's the point? If they both have glory, they're both God. There is plurality in the singularity of the Godhead. So in the mystery of the incarnation, we just talked about incarnational grace, we can say both of these and they're both true. That in love, the Father sent his Son, and we can also say in love, God gave himself, right? The plurality and the singularity of the Godhead. Well, we're gonna hit this last paragraph briefly. We'll run through it. Because in verses nine through 13, there's more confirmation Jesus is going to give them that he's going to go to the cross. You've got you to you gotta summon some caffeine from your morning coffee to get this, last, this third to last point. So do that with me, please. Verse 9, Jesus basically t- says, keep your soup cooler shut. Don't say a word about what happened up on the Mount of Transfiguration until I am raised. Why does he not want them to be evangelists for him yet? Because that will only fuel and feed and fan misguided, wrong expectations about what it would look like for Jesus to do his work as Savior. You mean he was up on that mountain and he just lit up in glory? Woo, yes, sir. You know he's coming down now to kick butt of these Roman occupiers and finally set us free. That's what they would do, right? I mean, Peter had that in him, didn't he? So he's saying, I don't, you, you can't be my evangelist yet because you don't get the evangel yet. But you will when I'm raised from the dead. So then they pop this question, which seems inexplicable, almost like out of the blue. Where's this coming from? 
The disciples asked him, verse 10, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? It's actually not out of blues, you might think. You see, way back in Malachi, Malachi, that minor prophet with major things to say, he said that Elijah is going to come at that great and terrible day of the Lord, or that great and awesome day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 5. And then verse 6, he references a coming restoration. So I think the disciples are thinking something like this. Wait, 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 wait. Elijah was just with you up on the mountain, right? You, did you guys see that, right? Elijah was up there. Malachi said that when Elijah comes, there is going to be a great and awesome day of the Lord. I don't see a great and awesome day of the Lord. These Roman chumps are still doing their thing. I don't see any restoration. We're still under oppression. So Elijah really hasn't come like, he, like Malachi said he would, which then calls into question if you are really who you say you are, Jesus. Hmm. Again, they're still struggling. They're missing the cross. And perhaps they're hoping that all his talk of suffering in the cross is going to go away because he has also talked about glory and victory. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus solves this riddle. He solves this dilemma if you want to see it. Jesus answered, well, Elijah does come and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. He's saying Elijah already came and it didn't turn out so well. What's he talking about there? He's referring to John the Baptist, who, as it were, came in the spirit of Elijah, boldly calling people to faith as he called them to repentance, right? And what happened to John the Baptist for that? Oh, there was a little, I don't know what it was, an inappropriate dance by Herod's daughter, and then for that dance, she was rewarded with the head of John the Baptist. He was decapitated, executed. And by the way, the disciples actually do get that part. How do we know? Because if you look at verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now notice the punchline. Here's the punchline. Here's what Jesus is driving at. Last part of verse 12. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. What he is saying is, the faith of the forerunner is foreshadowing his own fate as the Christ. That there's coming a mountaintop experience of experiences. The event of the ages. The event upon which every human being that has ever lived is living right now or will ever live the event upon which their destiny hangs. Only this is not going to be so much a mountaintop. Actually, it's going to be a small hill, a small nasty hill, a small hill where wicked things happen, where men were massacred in the most brutal of ways via crucifixion. And on that hill, Golgotha or Mount Calvary, Jesus will give his life 
as a sacrificial atoning death for each and every person who will turn from their sin and trust in him and follow him with their lives. And he's good on that promise because he was raised from the dead. So in his own words, Jesus said, it was for this very hour he was born. This very hour, he said, he was born. The cross. We just sang, but as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. I asked you last, but I'm gonna ask you again. Have you been led to the cross? Because every single person who will enter the kingdom of God has to enter the kingdom themselves. The turnstile into God's kingdom is one shoulder width wide. You have to come for yourself. You have to see your sin and run to the Savior. And it is a kind work of God to lead you to the cross. Have you been led by the Spirit of God to the cross? There is a world and eternity of difference to being in church and being in Christ, right? And there are times for those of us who have been to the cross by God's grace where the cross is so rich and real, it's like you're at that very hour. We, times when you wonder how that could ever be doubted. But then there are times we don't feel that so much, is there? Isn't it right, right? Times we don't feel it so much. And so I close with a point that doesn't come from this immediate text, but comes from Peter's recollection of this text. My last point is this. Revelation over experience. What I mean is scripture should carry more weight in your heart than experience. How do I get to that point? Well, backing up. You may have noticed that point one was up on the mountaintop, right? I am God, the manifestation of Christ's glory. Point two, up on the mountaintop, the affirmation of the Father. Yeah, he really is God. Point three, we went from the mountaintop to a small hilltop, but it was the mountain of mountains, Mount Calvary. And now we've come off it into everyday life, life in the valley, metaphorically speaking. And you know that life in this valley can be very hard sometimes, can it? In life in this valley, we can be tempted to give majority opinion, what most people think, and or personal feelings more authority than God's word in our hearts. In other words, what others think and or how I feel, now those are the facts I'm willing to work with. Wikiality. Anybody ever heard the expression wikiality? Wikiality was coined by political sociologist Stephen Cobain. Wikiality says this, that reality or truth is determined by plurality. In other words, what makes something valid and true is if enough people think it, then, well, it's, it's got to be true. And he takes that from Wikipedia. Wikipedia has some great articles, I read it, but some not so great articles. 
Because anybody can write on Wikipedia. There's no check. There has been more recently, he notes, that there's a lockdown device, but if enough people say, no, this is really the truth, then you override it, and that becomes the truth, reality determined by plurality. Do you know who decidedly was not into wikiality? Jesus. When Pastor Nick preached out of Matthew 16, he noted Jesus' words when he asked the crew, well, who do people say that I am? What's the majority opinion? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're like, some, you know, they had these different answers. And, and Jesus, what did Jesus not say? Jesus did not say, well, hey, if that's what people say I am, if that's who people say I am, just go with it, okay? That can be your truth. No, 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 no. He drives them, does he not? To the singular truth that he alone is God alone. Well, Jesus, he doesn't embrace wikiality, and neither should we. If majority opinion replaces objective truth in your life, it will steer you towards two things, a life of unfaithfulness and a life of instability. And I, feel, I fear many people go that direction. Well, if majority opinion taking over our hearts uh, is not what maybe can take over our hearts, how about that other thing, how I feel? Now, let me say something right here. I believe that women are sometimes unfairly accused of succumbing to being dominated by feelings as opposed to by men. But guys, that's not true. I've seen men just as much driven by feelings. I'm offended because of that. I just felt offended. I mean, I started with myself. Both men and women alike in different ways, sure, but in the same way, ultimately, can be driven more by feelings than by objective truth. Matthew Redmond, he's a Christian counselor. I like to read him, said, quote, most people are led by feelings, which is a problem. Because while feelings can tell us much, they should almost never tell us what we should do. Now don't get it misconstrued. misconstrued. Am I saying feelings are bad? Nope. Am I saying feelings should be ignored? Not at all. I'm simply saying feelings might be good at telling us where we're at, but they're usually not real good on telling us where we should go. Now what does all of that, wikiality, personal feelings, what does that have to do with this point? I think there's a real connection there. Remember the point is, revelation is better, or scripture is better than experience. Not that we deny our experience, but the ultimate filter is revelation or truth. I just quoted to you in the introduction, hopefully about 38 minutes ago-ish, that Peter said, we were with him on the mountain. You remember that? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But if you go to verse 19, he says, and, or but, it's a conjunction, we have a more sure word of prophecy. And he goes on to tell you what that prophecy is, canonize scripture. Do you realize what Peter is saying right there, family? In other words, his, this revelation, the scripture, is even in his estimation more reliable than a real experience he had of seeing Jesus transfigured up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you get the weight of that? 
You say, well, how could that even be? That was real for him. Yes, it was real, but here's where he could go astray if he was just leaning on that experience. He could add to it. He could take away from it. He could reinterpret it because it's not down there in codified fashion. Listen, if Peter says revelation is more sure than the real experience he had in seeing the transfigured Christ, how much more should we be distrusting of majority opinion and even personal feelings as being the final arbiter of what is right and wrong in life in the kingdom of God? So if you want to have a mountaintop experience hearing God, if you want to have mountaintop truth for life in the valley, you're going to have to open this book. That's how you have a mountaintop experience. And you're going to have to open it with the eyes of faith. If you want a mountaintop experience, open the Bible. And, and I had stories to tell you, but for the sake of time, we're going to have communion. I'm not going to do that. I will briefly say that there are stories of, of people who have confessed Christ all their life, and all of a sudden, one person, one they were in, in college, another person, one they're in the military, another, different places, when all of a sudden, they want to read the word like they never had before, because now they're hearing the voice of God through the word of God. And when someone begins to grow roots down into this mountaintop, you get that mountaintop truth that will sustain you in every season as we walk through this valley.